This is Adopted with Anna and Sam. We love books and we love movies. Warning, here be spoilers. Welcome to Adapted with Anna and Sam. I'm Anna. And I'm Sam. In this podcast, we talk about a book, we talk about a movie or a TV show based on that book, we play some fun games, and we encourage you to read and watch along with us. This episode, we're talking about Murder on the Orient Express. Yay, it's one of my favorite Christie's. Full disclosure, it's actually not my favorite Agatha Christie, but I love all Agatha Christie pretty much. So I'm just excited we're doing one of them. It's going to be so much fun. Yes, it is. So we're actually going to start with a little six degrees of separation from our last podcast to this one. Sam, you want to start us off? Sure. So in the last episode, episode two, we spoke about Sleepy Hollow and that wonderful Tim Burton movie that oh. we ended up tearing to pieces. So <laughs> We were a little mean. It's okay. No, it, it's still good fun. It's still good fun. Um, so I, I, had to, I actually struggled a little bit with... Six Degreeing My Sleepy Hollow to Morty on the Express because there's the obvious Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp is in the 2017 version of a Murder on the Orient Express, Express and, and Sleepy Hollow. also plays Ichabod Crane in Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, so, so I was like, that's you know only what? one degree. Right. It's zero degrees, actually. Exactly. It's, it's so I, I, I challenged myself a little bit. So um, in this episode, we're actually going to be covering three different versions of Murder on the Orient Express. Um, so I tried to try see if I could work a little bit more of the of the movies in there. Mm-hmm. I didn't get all three, but I got two. So here we go. So I started out with Stephen Waddington in the in Sleepy Hollow, who was also in Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis was in Age of Innocence with Michelle Pfeiffer, who was in the Kenneth Branagh version of Murder on the Orient Express. Also in that version was Derek uh, Jacoby. And Derek Jacoby was in Gladiator with Thomas Arana. And Thomas Arana was in The Hunt for Red October with Sean Connery, who was in the Albert Finney version of Murder on the Orange Express. So there you go. Yes, there you go. Thank you very much. Anna, why don't you uh, give us yours? So I'm actually going to break the rules a little bit. And before I do my six degrees, I want to talk about Sleepy Hollow just a little bit more because... We only talked about the 1999 adaptation of Sleepy Hollow. At the time we recorded the podcast, I had never seen the 1980 made-for-TV movie starring Jeff Mother and Goldblum, who I feel should not be ignored. No, and I feel like he has become our mascot, he's honestly. Be- he's become Can our mascot. we just mascot? make him our mascot? Yeah, it's official. All right, sweet. So what's amazing is that this film is available in its entirety on YouTube. I'm going to watch that tonight. (laughs) If you have a little time, you have an hour and 40 minutes to spare. It's got um, a very young Jeff Goldblum as schoolmaster Ichabod Crane. And Brom Bones is played by thespian extraordinaire Dick Butkus. (laughs) And (laughs) it's it's so funny because having spent so much time with the 1999 version, this version feels so true to the book and so much more faithful, even though it still, I mean, takes a lot of liberties. But it's, you know, 
set in a world that feels like might be next door to the world <laughs> <laughs> that, that um that the original author <laughs> author created so it's like really it's just it's just a little bit more um true to the to the original and of course jeff Goldblum is weird and adorable but weird because he what is he does. the best part of every movie he's in I, I don't know. There's a lot of like salty Yankee characters in this. <laughs> there's this there's this um this one guy who <laughs> every other line is like, Well, that's because you're not married. You need to get married. And then he's like, and here's my widowed daughter. <laughs> it's like so subtle, Dad. It it was like when my mom talks about wanting grandkids, subtlety. Like <laughs> Yeah, parents are good at that. <laughs> Nothing changes all over the world. So that was very entertaining. Well, well, thank you for bringing that to our attention. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that it's like a fantastic. No. <laughs> <laughs> but in comparison, it's cute. So um, the other thing about our six degrees of separation is that I had a little fun. I'm actually double checking my notes right now because I spent more time trying to get this right than I spent on watching any one of these movies wow. <laughs> I spent like an hour I spent legitimately an hour and a half piecing this together because I was determined to not just link Johnny Depp's Sleepy Hollow to Johnny Depp's Murder on the Orient Express I was determined to link Sleepy Hollow to every single murder on the Orient Express we're talking about wow. today I'm a crazy person. You are a crazy person. I feel really bad that I only spent five minutes on mine now. <laughs> you should feel bad. So, we start with Sleepy Hollow, starring Johnny Depp, who was in um, Corpse Bride with, or excuse me, he did a voice in Corpse Bride, which also featured the voice of Albert Finney. Yes. Poirot, number one. Albert Finney was in Big Fish with Helena Bonham Carter, who was in a miniseries version of Henry VIII with Poirot number two, David Suchet. David Suchet was in a little love film called Wing Commander oh my God, with Matthew Lillard, who was in Love Labor's Lost with Poirot number three, Kenneth Branagh, who was in the 2017 Congratulations. version. Congratulations. Fabulous job. Thank you. The other thing I want to point out is that the key to all three of our Poirots is Helena Bonham Carter. I can link her to each and every one of our Poirot's, wow. plus, of course, her uh, on-screen partner, Johnny Depp. They have done many films together. Yes. So, like, Helena Bonham Carter is the key. Wow. And... Do you think, like, if we plucked her off the earth, like, British filmmaking as we knew it would just collapse? Yes. Clearly. Wow. Love her or hate never, her. She is... Never get rid of her. Everywhere. <laughs> so that's that's my very ambitious six degrees of separation. I actually didn't even watch any of the movies. I just did that. That's amazing. Thank I, you. I'm very proud of you. Thank I'm you. Very proud of you. That is that is what I've done with my life. So Sam, why don't you kick us off by giving us your book report? <laughs> okay, this will be short and sweet. <laughs> no, I'm lying. All right. So today our book report deals with the novel Murder on the Orient Express. Murder on the Orient Express is a novel by Dame Agatha Christie, starring her famous Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. He of the particular habits and sensitive stomach. Fun fact. Poirot appeared in 33 novels, one play, and over 50 short stories, but Christie was not his biggest fan. She actually kind of hated him. Originally published in 1934 in the UK, um, the list of major characters include Poirot, a Belgian detective, 
Mary Debenham as governess, Colonel Arbuthnot, the colonel from India between the ages of 40 and 50, Monsieur Book, the director of the train company running the Orient Express and also a former policeman, Mr. Samuel Edward Ratchet, an American businessman of unknown origins, Hector Willard McQueen, his American secretary from New York, Michel, the conductor, Antonio Foscarelli, an Italian, Edward Masterman, an English valet of Ratchet's, Cyrus Hardman, an American in a loud suit, Princess Jagomirov, Greta Olson, a Swede, middle-aged woman, Mrs. Caroline Hubbard, a brash American widow, Hildegard Schmidt, a German lady's maid, Count Andrani, a Hungarian husband, Countess Andrani, a Hungarian wife, and Dr. Constantine, a Greek doctor. There's a theme here. Everybody's identified by their nationality. I was going to say, I feel like this could be the beginning of a joke. A Greek doctor, a Hungarian diplomat, and a Belgian (laughs) detective walk into a train. (laughs) It's exactly what it turns into. (laughs) So the novel opens on an awkward scene in Aleppo, Syria, where a young French officer stands next to a train car, a sleeper version, and conversing, conversing with a small, lean man who turns out to be Hercule Poirot. This young officer is trying to see Poirot off on the Taurus Express via Istanbul, a.k.a. Istanbul. There are hints of the case Poirot had solved while in Aleppo, including tempers growing worse, an officer's suicide, another officer's resignation, and at the end, everyone is at ease again. There are two other passengers on the train with Poirot, both English, Mary Debenham and Colonel Arbuthnot, who dine together each meal, though as strangers getting to know each other. Poirot overhears a conversation between Mary and the colonel that indicates they are not actually, in fact, strangers. Upon arrival in his hotel in Istanbul, Poirot receives a telegram that requires he head straight back to London as quickly as possible for a previous case that requires his attention again, and he asks the concierge to get him a first-class sleeper berth on the Orient Express, leaving at 9 o'clock that night. The concierge is like, no trouble! He'll get Poirot on an accommodation on the Istanbul Calais coach. It's usually empty at this time of year. While dining, Poirot is accosted by his own friend, Monsieur Book, the director of the train company, and learns they will be traveling on the same train. Very handy. At the train, however, the conductor indicates berth 16 is actually full, and there are truly no berths available for Monsieur Poirot. Poirot is is willing to travel in an ordinary carriage, but Monsieur Book won't hear of it. Absolutely not. The conductor reluctantly reveals one passenger, a Monsieur Harris, has not yet arrived, and Monsieur Book assigns that second-class berth to Poirot. Poirot learns he is to share this compartment with the younger American he saw in the hotel uh, he saw in the hotel earlier, Hector McQueen, but it is only for one night. At lunch the next day, all the passengers of the Istanbul Calais coach gather in the dining car, and we meet the rest of the players as Poirot and Monsieur Book remark upon the scene before them. There's an Italian sitting with a neat Englishman in an American in a loud suit, an incredibly ugly old lady. Which is a great way to describe a character. She's so ugly. I know. And then, like, in the movie, she's not actually played as, like, extremely ugly. She's played by Judy Dench and Eileen Atkins in a couple of different versions. But they're not ugly no, old women in no, any way, I mean, shape, or form. We should all be so lucky as to look like Judy Dench when we're her Right? Age. I'm like, jeez. I'm like, how ugly is she? are they thinking she they, is? They took some liberties. Apparently. <laughs> I don't think you can really get any actress to sign on to a role being like, oh, you're playing the ugly one. Yeah, you're, you're, you're just literally described as <laughs> ugly old lady. We're casting you for your horrible face. <laughs> That's my lifelong dream, actually. Oh, <laughs> Someday. Someday. Uh, and this ugly old lady is the Princess uh, Dragomirov, Mary Debenham, sitting with a middle-aged woman and a stout elderly woman, Colonel Arbuthnot sitting by himself, a middle-aged German or Scandinavian woman 
probably a German lady's maid, a married couple, the man about 30 and the girl about 20, Hungarian embassy, and then Philin McQueen and Ratchet. 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 That's a terrible name. Perfect it's for the character. Great, it's a great name for a character. It really is. It's Ratchet. <laughs> After luncheon, Ratchet approaches Poirot and offers Poirot a job. Ratchet has people trying to kill him and he wants Poirot to investigate. Poirot politely declines because he doesn't like Ratchet's face. True story. Again, with mm-hmm. the Christy is really mm-hmm. obsessed with people's faces. She's very into like artificial. I don't like things. your face. Yeah. I bet she was, like, really mean when she was drunk. Oh, I, I bet, bet if you were, like, at a dinner party with Agatha Christie and she had a few too many cocktails, she would say some nasty, mean girl I would, stuff. Yeah. I would love to hear that. All right. Anyways, continue. <laughs> <laughs> at the next stop in Belgrade, Monsieur Book moves Poirot into Monsieur Book's first-class compartment in the Stambou Calais carriage, which is next to Ratchet's, and Monsieur Book moves to the Athens coach, which has just been added onto the train. That coach contains only Monsieur Book and a Greek doctor. Remember that. Poirot is awoken several times at night. A cry in the night, a bell in another compartment, a thud against his door. When he wakens for the last time, it is morning and the train is stopped due to a large snowdrift. The passengers are in an uproar and Poirot is enjoying the show in the dining car when he is called to Monsieur Book's new compartment by another conductor. Monsieur Book informs Poirot another passenger, Ratchet, has been stabbed 12 times in his berth. He was discovered by Michel, the conductor. The door is locked and chained on the inside, the window open, but no footprints in the snow. Monsieur Book begs Poirot to investigate, and Poirot graciously accepts. Very, very graciously. He likes to hear that. He does. He's like, no, 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 my friend, no. And then he's like, okay. (laughs) Monsieur Book confirms a list of other passengers on the train, including that the ordinary carriages are locked after dinner, and so Poirot proclaims the murderer must be in the Stambul Calais coach. Poirot first interviews McQueen, who reveals he does not know very much about his employer, but that he thinks Ratchet isn't his real name, and that Ratchet left America to escape something, and that he was receiving threatening letters. When Poirot examines Ratchet's compartment, he and Dr. Constantine, the Greek doctor, examine the body, noting that the twelve wounds seem to have been made by at least two different murderers. Clues include Ratchet's drugged nightcap, no steps outside the open window, Two different matches had been lit, a handkerchief, a pipe cleaner, a broken watch stopped at 1.15 a.m., and a charred fragment of paper, which reveals the phrase, Mem- Member Little Daisy Armstrong. This leads Poirot to deduce, deduce that Ratchet is actually Cassetti, an American who had kidnapped and killed a young girl named Daisy Armstrong. Here, we flash back to the Armstrong kidnapping case. Daisy Armstrong was the three-year-old daughter of a Colonel Armstrong and granddaughter of famous American actress Linda Arden. She was kidnapped and ransomed for $200,000, and despite the ransom being paid, she was found dead and hadn't been dead at least two weeks. Her pregnant mother, Sonia, went into shock and both she and her baby died, and Colonel Armstrong killed himself out of grief. A French or possibly Swiss nursemaid also killed herself after her involvement was questioned, though she proved to be innocent after her death. Poirot interviews the other passengers, conductor Michel, McQueen, Masterman the Valet, Mrs. Hubbard, Greta Olson, Princess Dragomirov, Count and Countess Andreni, Colonel Arbuthnot, Mr. Hardman, who turns out to be a private detective, Foscarelli, Miss Debenham, and Hildegard Schmidt. Mrs. Hubbard finds the murder weapon, a knife, of course, in her purse, and of course Mrs. Hubbard denies all knowledge of how it got there. Poirot then moves to solve the puzzle. He gathers all the passengers together in the dining car, including Michelle the conductor, and puts forth two possible solutions. 
and Monsieur Bouc and Dr. Constantine will decide on which one is the right one. Solution number one. An enemy of Ratchet snuck under the train at Belgrade wearing a conductor's uniform and using a passkey, snuck into Ratchet's compartment, stabbed him, snuck out, and hid his uniform in another compartment and then left the train before it left the station. Solution two. The murderer is a passenger on the train. All the passengers are revealed to have a connection to the Armstrong family or Armstrong case and acted as one, each stabbing Ratchet one time for a total of 12 wounds. Mary Debenham was a governess to Daisy's aunt. Colonel Arbuthnot was a compatriot of Colonel Armstrong's. McQueen was, a, was the son of a prosecutor of the case. Michelle's daughter was the French nursemaid who killed herself. Foscarelli was the Armstrong chauffeur. Masterman was Colonel Armstrong's Batman. Hardman, Hardman was a policeman working the Armstrong case who fell in love with Michelle's daughter. Princess Dragomirov was Daisy's godmother. Greta Olsen was Daisy's nursemaid. Schmidt was the Armstrong's cook. Countess Andreni was Daisy's aunt. And Count Andreni, her husband, stood in for her. And Mrs. Hubbard is Linda Arden, a.k.a. Daisy's grandmother. They all planned it together. Monsieur Book agrees that solution one, where a strange, uh, someone snuck onto the train, is the correct solution, and Dr. Constantine supports him. And Poirot retires from the case. It's, it's a long but fascinating book. I love There's it. There's a lot of red herrings. There's in so book. many red herrings. And I, I glanced by all of them because I was already taking forever with my <laughs> summary. Um, but it's a beautifully set up set up story because of all the red herrings. But anyways, Anna, why don't you tell us uh, the report from the balcony and maybe we'll cover those red herrings. <laughs> um, I actually won't. <laughs> because what I actually want to talk about is not the mystery itself, which takes up most of the middle of the story, but since we are actually talking about three different versions of Murder on the Orient Express tonight, um, we don't have time to walk through all of them, and I want to focus on uh, two specific things. So um, there have been actually many versions of uh, Christie's famous novel featuring the mustachioed Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. Uh, most recent is the 2017 version, directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh's mustaches. <laughs> There's the Oscar-winning 1974 film starring a too young and too tall but still excellent Albert Finney and a two ta 2010 episode of the long-running Agatha, Christie, Agatha Christie's Poirot series starring David Suchet. And I, I just want to say, uh, warning, I have been watching the David Suchet version of Poirot for so long that I can't help but refer to him as Poirot. <laughs> so when I was planning this out, I kept thinking, right, well, there's the Finney version, and then there's the Poirot version. And that's no, that's not David that Suchet works. and... Hercule Poirot are not actually the same person. I just... He has been in other things, we promise. He has. <laughs> and other people have clearly played Poirot. I just, they're so deeply ingrained in my psyche. Yes. If I refer to the Poirot version of anything, That's I am talking, talking about, about David Suchet. All right. So, and also, there was a 2001 made-for-TV movie starring Alfred Molina. Oh, it was terrible. Which modernizes the story to the 21st century, which I have not seen, and... Apologies to Mr. Molina. I will not be seeing. Mm -mm, have you I love actually, him. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's not good. We're not offering. No. Um, yeah. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to pretend so, it doesn't exist. Um, we're going to talk about those three versions that I did mention. And as I said, I'm not going to do a blow-by-blow blow of each movie, but I want to focus on um, the beginnings and the endings of each film because this is where each version really puts their own stamp on the story. So first of all, the casts. Between these three versions, we could recast Harry Potter several times over. <laughs> and, the we do. and we do. 
The 2017 version has Brana, Daisy Ridley, Judi Dench, Olivia Colman, Derek Jacobi, and plenty of American film royalty as well. Michelle Pfeiffer, Leslie Odom Jr. of Hamilton fame, Willem Dafoe, Josh Gad, and the artist formerly known as Johnny Depp. <laughs> um, it also has Penelope Cruz, but since she's neither American or British, she just gets her own category. Well, because she deserves her own category. She well. does. She's fabulous. Um, the 2010 episode of Agatha Christie's Poirot stars David Suchet and features a notable ensemble including Jessica Chastain, David Morrissey, Barbara Hershey, Toby Jones, Eileen Atkins, and Hugh Bonneville. Oh, Lord Robert. Lord Robert. And of course, the 1970 film features such lauded actors as Albert Finney, Sean Connery, Vanessa Redgrave, Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, who won an Oscar for her performance as Greta the Nursemaid. Jean-Pierre Cassel, Anthony Perkins, Michael York, Jacqueline Bissett, Dame Wendy Hiller, and up-and-comer John Gilgood. <laughs> so let's start with the most recent version. Brana's film opens in Jerusalem, with a cute little moppet running through the streets to deliver eggs for Mr. Poirot's breakfast. Ugh. Poirot and his gigantic mustaches are selective and will only eat eggs that are exactly the same size. The eggs are brought, the eggs are cooked, the eggs are rejected, and the boy goes back to try it all again. This is a cutesy way of introducing Poirot's obsession with order and food, and the sequence is active and jaunty. Uh, but also, why didn't anyone inspect the eggs before they were cooked? Or, better yet, could the kid not check the eggs back at the farm before he ran all the way back to the hotel? Right? Just, uh, that one bothered me a little bit. A little bit. Eventually, Poirot sighs, blames the chickens, and goes without his breakfast. No, he would never go without food. <laughs> Right. Actually, I, I would disagree. I think there have been examples where Poirot was presented with something so vile he did reject it. But not for size. Alright, I feel like I could make a joke that I'm not going to make because <laughs> I'm too mature. No, you're not. So Poirot is in Jerusalem to resolve a complex problem. A valuable religious artifact has been stolen, and the three main suspects are men of God, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish, who have been brought together to broker peace between their followers. On the way to confront his suspects and announce the solution to the mystery, Poirot steps in a pile of poop on the street. He hesitates, disturbed, and then puts his other foot in the pile so that both shoes are equally defiled. And I just, I have to pause to talk about this choice. If you have ever read even one Poirot book, congratulations. You understand the character better than Kenneth Branagh. And I think you probably missed a golden opportunity to make some money as a consultant on this film. Yes. Uh, 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 I don't know. I don't. I... Poirot is famously fastidious about his clothes and appearance, especially his shoes. Mm -hmm. The choice to make such a huge shift in the character's basic motivations and to make it so early in the film made it very clear to me that Brana is going to do what Brana wants and the source material is only useful to him when it serves his purposes. And that trend continues throughout the rest of the film, including adding a long-lost love interest for the normally asexual Poirot, Ugh. a lot of violence, and a wholly unnecessary chase scene. Albert Finney endured hours of old-age makeup and stooped to hide his frame. Brana is determined to show off his physical prowess and be the athletic Poirot. He lets his mustaches do the character work for him. <laughs> so that's my criticism of the performance. I've digressed. Back to the opening scene. Poirot does a shtick. He unravels the mystery with a lot of gesticulating and scenery chewing in front of a street mob, even ramming his cane into the chink in a stone wall, which I think might actually be the Wailing Wall, for dramatic Ooh. effect, before finally revealing the true villain is the chief of police, who profited from the turmoil between the religious factions and therefore didn't want peace. He was following the money. 
The police chief attempts to escape, only to run right into Poirot's cane, which had been stuck handily at face height, and be knocked to the ground. It's a showboaty maneuver, but then... Yeah, look at Brana. Brana is a bit of a showboat. Yeah. So is Poirot. The David Suchet adaptation takes its own liberties with the opening scene. Instead of Poirot solving a cutesy whodunit in the streets, he is interrogating a lieutenant, giving him a taste of the old famous Poirot harangue. Poirot has the bit between his teeth and doesn't seem to see how the overload of guilt is acting on this young man's psyche. In a matter of seconds, the guilty man grabs a gun from his guard's holster, points it at his own temple, and pulls the trigger. Poirot is sprayed with blood. From here, we move to the streets of Istanbul for another disturbing scene. We are introduced to Mary Debenham and Colonel Arbuthnot, played by Jessica Chastain and David Morrissey. Poirot spies the two lovers together, but they are all interrupted by an outcry. A woman is being chased through the streets. She's accused of getting pregnant by a man who's not her husband. A man, we presume her husband, grabs her and hauls her uh, into the square where a mob proceeds to stone her to death. Mary Debenham is horrified. She tries to get the colonel to intervene, but there is nothing they can do against the crowd. Poirot looks on, inscrutable. So we have two very dark, disturbing scenes. What is moral and what is illegal and who decides? The film will come back to this question of what is moral and what it means to break the rules. Poirot will also spend a lot of time on Catholicism, uh, which is an interesting choice since Brana's Poirot does feature a scene that is straight out of The Last Supper. Mm -hmm. The Finney adaptation, directed by Sidney Lumet, uh, is it Lumet or Lumet? I think it's Lumet. Let's say Lumet directed by Sidney Lumet, opens not with Poirot, but with the story behind Ratchet's murder. Whereas the other two adaptations and the book itself reveal the backstory that brought all these people together only as Poirot himself discovers it, this version puts da Daisy Armstrong in the very opening montage. A haunting noirish sequence that juxtaposes dark shots of an unknown man taking a child from her home in the dead of night with splashes of newspaper headlines accompanied by jarring chords of music, narrating the kidnapping of little Daisy Armstrong, the discovery of her murdered body, the anguish of her family, her mother's miscarriage and death, and her father's suicide. Five years later, Poirot is in Istanbul, and we pick up with a scene of comical forced politeness between Poirot and his escort, very much like the opening scene in the book. Later in the film, we will learn how Daisy's death connects to the grim murder on the train. But for now, the images, like something from a horror movie, hang over the busy train stations, the elegant trappings of wealthy men and women, and the piles of rich food to nourish them as all gather aboard the world-famous Orient Express. In each movie, the character is introduced, tensions rise, everyone avoids Mrs. Hubbard, and then the odious Mr. Ratchet is found stabbed to death after the train has been stalled by a snowdrift on the tracks. Waiting to big dugout, Poirot must race against time and discover the truth before the authorities arrive. And of course, as Sam has already revealed, they all did it. <laughs> Ratchet is really Cassetti, the man behind the death of an innocent child, whose greed and cruelty tore apart a family and ruined multiple lives, and has escaped justice scot-free. And the twelve people who loved that family, who suffered the most, take justice into their own hands. And they would have gotten away with it, too. Except it wasn't all those kids and their crazy dog. I mean, if it wasn't for Hercule Poirot <laughs> and his mystery van. <laughs> so there's a lot of moral gray area here, and each film has its own take. Early in the film, Brana states, there is right and there is wrong. So we know that will be tested. 
His murderers go further in this film than in any, any other, faking a knife attack on Michelle Pfeiffer's Mrs. Hubbard, and then Dr. Arbuthnot, plays, played by Leslie Odom Jr., threatens Poirot with his pistol, leading to a foot race down the rickety snow-covered bridge. When Brana finally confronts his murderers, arrayed in the mouth of a tunnel outside the train for extra dramatic effect, and behind a long table like Jesus and his disciples in the Last Supper, he tells them he will turn them in, and he does that thing that people always do in movies where they fake out the killers by giving them a gun and telling them to shoot it, but really the gun was never loaded, but the killer chooses not to shoot, even though they didn't know it was a loaded. Yeah. It's a cliche. Poirot comes so close to turning them in and talks about evil and then decides not to turn them in because Mrs. Hubbard, who's really into Arden, chooses not to shoot him. It's, um, it's a little heavy-handed. I, I would say a little, Yeah. <laughs> It's like, like bang, bang, head, bang, bang. <laughs> Here's your hammer. Here's your head. In the Suchet version, the ending, like the beginning, is dour and depressing. Trapped in the cold dining car of a train that has lost power, Poirot confronts the conspirators as the wind howls outside. The crashing aggressive music that has underscored most of the film is silent as Poirot lays out the story, and we hear only that bitter wind. Poirot's judgment is just as harsh, as he tells the killers they had no right to take the law into their own hands. Princess Dragomirov offers to take the fall if he'll let the others go, but Poirot does not relent, and he commands Boop to lock the door. In the dining car, the killers argue. Arbuthnot gets his gun, but Mary Debenham stops him, saying, We don't do what is wrong. Did you like Mary Debenham impression? That was great. That was really Thank great. Thank you. In Poirot's eyes, they already crossed a line when they killed Cassetti. In Mary's eyes, there is still a line they will not cross. Mary Debenham leaves the car to bring Poirot a cup of tea, so I guess the lock wasn't very good or something. <laughs> she tells Poirot, When you've been denied justice, you feel incomplete. You feel as if God has abandoned you. Poirot touches his rosary and contemplates what she has said as the wind howls. Outside the train, under the bluest daylight I've ever seen, the troop of killers wait to see what Poirot will do as he meets with the authorities. Apparently he has had a change of heart, and he tells the Yugoslavian police the lone assassin version of events before sharing a look with Mary Debenham. The killers will get away with it, but they already seem haunted by their act. Will they ever not feel abandoned by God? The 1974 film features a lot of rituals. The loading of the food onto the train in the opening sequence. The way Poirot prepares the hatbox mesh uh, to reveal the hidden writing in the scorched note. And the murder scene itself is like a religious ceremony with each character naming the person that they are acting for before they stab Cassetti. And at the end, Poirot lays out his two versions, the simple and the complex, before finally settling on the simple. The killers go through one last ritual, clinking a champagne glass with Daisy Armstrong's grandmother, Linda Arden, toasting their success. It is not joyful, but there is a sense of catharsis, of release. These killers are not haunted. They are released from their torment. Poirot sees and silently leaves the compartment. Perhaps he wishes he could bring them to justice, but if he does, he keeps it to himself. No... The thing that struck me so much about the three movies compared to the book is, like you just, it, you, even though you you don't see it so much in the third, in the Albert Finney version, is there is a morality that's added to the crime. And when, in the book, when Poirot is setting up, you know, kind of the, when he puts forth the two solutions, he, he says that his preferred solution is the first one. Because... Well, he he frames it as, well, I had this theory, but it's not it's not my theory anymore. It's not right, and that turns out to be the theory where they all did it. So, right away, Poirot's like not not actually putting any morality out there. He's just like, I 
they did a good thing. He's like, he doesn't say they did a good thing, but he doesn't, he doesn't think poorly of them because they killed this murderer. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that the 1974 version, because it opens with the murder of Daisy Ridley and that sequence is, is really disturbing. It's really dark. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's really setting up. I mean, how, how would you act if you were in that position? I mean, this, this, yeah. Cassetti is evil. The thing he did is awful, and it it I think pushes the gray to a much <laughs> smaller. It's like, well, what they did was a little wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that's definitely reflected in in Poirot's performance. You know, he he kind of has this look on his face when he walks away, like he's not completely happy about it. But he there there's no like hanging over their over their heads that he might turn them in. I mean both of the other two versions definitely it seems like Paro has decided to turn them in and then he changes his right. mind yeah and then yeah and like the, the biggest thing also is Paro doesn't actually make a decision in the book like he he leaves it to Mr. Book and Dr. Constantine to be like you tell me what the solution is and that's what that's that's what it'll be and he he you know Mr. Book and Dr. Constantine are like before Poirot kind of lays out the two different versions, they're both like, no, it's somebody on this train, it's definitely... And then Poirot lays everything out and basically convinces Monsieur Book and Dr. Constantine that, oh no, it was a stranger. It That's was, the it only was, solution that you can only, live with. It's the only solution that you can live with. And it's like, that wasn't even on the table in any of the film versions. Yeah. And what's really funny too is like, um, we, didn't really, we didn't really mention this, but in both the Brana and the Suchet version... They combine Doctor Constantine and with a that's or a really replace good him point. with a character. Doctor, the Doctor is not um, a detached observer in right. those two versions. He is one of the murderers. Uh, he's in the Brana version. He's not Colonel Arbuthnot. He's Doctor Arbuthnot. Um, and of course, uh, he you know he uses the fact that he's a doctor to kind of throw Poirot off the scent and 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 um, try and trick him. And then in the Suchet version. They don't have the private investigator anymore. They have the doctor as the um, he's a, he's the OB. he was an obstetrician. Yeah, he was he was he was uh, Daisy's mother's OB. Yeah, which is like okay, fine. Why would you care that much? But I actually loved the doctor character in the Albert Finney version yes. because he and he and Book play these wonderful stand-ins for the audience. And every time Poro finishes interviewing someone, one of them stands up and goes, "She did it." And it's and it's played for it's comedy. <laughs> it's actually funny. That's that's the other thing is that the Suchet version is so dark and so Catholic. Yeah. And I mean, it starts with a suicide and then a woman being murdered on the streets. It ends with just the most blue lighting I've ever seen in my life. It's very dark. And then, um, you know, the the Brana version is so heavy handed. It's so overwrought. The Finney version is the only one that's. Fun. Yeah, it's that the only one that funny. like stays true to the to like the Christie version of like the feeling throughout. It's like, yes, it's a very serious thing. This man is dead, but Poirot is not like this dark, this dour man who's just like, oh my god, there's been a murder committed. This yeah, is like, Ugh. I was thinking, um, Agatha Agatha Christie's novels are frothy. Yes. I mean, they're murder mysteries, but they're, but they're frothy. Yes. They're champagne, exactly. And um, it's actually I, I noticed this watching the movies again. Albert Finney is the only Poirot who seems to be having fun. Yes. He's the only, he's the only, and not that it's, maybe fun is the right word. He's the only Poirot who seems to enjoy solving mysteries. Yes. And I will say, having watched David Suchet play this part for many years, in other, 
episodes, he enjoys the mystery more. This one, I don't know, maybe like as the actor gets older, he's more interested in the gray stuff because some of the some of the other later episodes are, are darker yeah. too. His his last episode's very yeah. Well, I don't rem- like, and I meant to look this up before we started recording, but I but I didn't. But I I read somewhere on if it was I don't know if it was like IMDb trivia or something, but David Suchet is a very very strong Catholic, and he has mm-hmm. very very deep beliefs in the and like he. He actually brought a lot of the Catholicism of his own self into Poirot. Like, that was, like, the thing he had requested that they keep adding. And I think it's no more evident than in this episode, like, the mm-hmm. murder on the Orient Express. Because we definitely agree. All the morality that is added is very much a Catholic morality. You know? And that so it's like, and I remember when we rewatched this version, I was just, like, we didn't watch it together, but I had found it on YouTube and I rewatched it. And I was like... Oh right! Oh, <laughs> I forgot. oh yeah, no. Oh, okay. This is why I only watched it once. Oh, and it just, it just, it wasn't Poirot to me. No. And it, it was, it was heartbreaking because he is such a great Poirot. It, it, yeah, and it's funny because the show's been around for twenty years, and you go back and watch some of the early, early episodes. Not very good. Like the writing and the production values get so much better later on. Yep. Um, there's a lot less like veiled racism in the later season. Like, the early 90s, they were still fe- figuring some stuff out. Yeah. Um, they are like, how true do we have to be here? Christie's <laughs> Well, works. Agatha Christie was racist, so we're gonna keep it racist, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, um, <laughs> hopefully learning our lessons on that one. Oh, God, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the David Suchet has always captured the character so, so well, even when the writing has not been as strong. I feel like he just, he gets the character. So it, it is weird that, that this version is actually not my favorite version, that I feel like it actually misses some stuff. And um, I, I, I do want to just pick on Kenneth Branagh a little bit more. I have no problem with that. Thank you. Um, it was interesting. When the trailer for, the, for this film came out, I was very excited because the cast is phenomenal. And several people I know got really obsessed with the mustaches, which... That was not the biggest problem. I had no problem with. That was actually one of the few character choices I was fine with. Apparently, uh, Agatha Christie lived to see the 1974 film of Murder on the Orient Express, and she thought Albert Finney was the only actor she'd seen so far who got Poirot right, except she hated his mustache. She did not think it was right. So, And David Suchet's mustache is also it's very thin. Mm-hmm. In the books... He refers to his mustaches as plurals. He, they are mustaches, not a mustache. And so I feel like someone, you know, some wig designer, some facial wig designer, I don't know what the title for that for that job was, but someone in, in the production read the book and said, we need a big ass mustache. And they gave him one and it's beautiful and glorious and it is a character of its own. And I feel like it's just about the only thing that Bronagh got right about Poirot. I think you're was right. Was that his mustaches should be impressive. Yeah, and, like, he should put all that effort into the care. And so, like, in the Albert Finney version, they do, like, I think he, he has a good a, job of He has a mustache him. mask. Yeah, like, of when he sleeps, doing he has that, a... But... <laughs> and Suchet, of course, we see his his grooming apparatus. He, it's yeah. definitely, a, it's, a, it's a point of pride. It's just, you know, Bronagh's so determined to make his Poirot an action star... And, and that's so not who Poirot is. And he's got this long lost love. And like, that's not who Poirot is. Like Poirot yeah. is, there, there is no, Poirot's probably asexual. Yeah. He, he is described as a cold fish. Yep. 
at best he can appreciate the aesthetics of a beautiful person, but there's never any romance for him. And so the idea that kind of shoving in this like uber heterosexuality and, oh, he's an action man and he, he does a chase scene and, you know, Finney was also like tall and broad shouldered and he worked really hard to hide. Mm-hmm. He did a fabulous yeah. job. He did a really good job and he was he was too young for the part, but he played up the age like like a stage actor would. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It it's just it's very disappointing because some of the other actors in this movie I think do do a really good mm-hmm. job. So should we play some fun and games? Can we? Yes. Yay. So it is time for fun and games. So shall we start out with our hot grads and hairdos? Let's do it. Um, so this is where we talk about our top three hotties and our top three styles and outfits. Uh, so Anna, do you want to go first? Uh, yes. So my top three hotties in no particular order are Leslie Odom Jr. as Dr. Arbuthnot. I did have some problems with the way they changed his character, mm-hmm. but he is adorable and wonderful and I love him. Uh, David Morrissey also as Arbuthnot, David Morrissey. Definitely more of a silver fox, but mm-hmm. fox nonetheless. Mm-hmm. I am not going to put the third Colonel Arbuthnot on my list. Sean Connery he was, was bumped yep. by the too pretty for primetime Michael York as oh, Count so Andrini. Pretty. Michael York was just like the most pretty man at that age. He really like, was. I don't know any women who have skin like that. Ugh, no. So those are those are my three hotties. Who are your hotties, Sam? Well, we actually overlap in two out of the three. Oh, I do was, we? Yeah, I was very impressed. So um, in no particular order, I actually found Michelle Pfeiffer to be very attractive. She was. She was not the dowdy American housewife that she's described none as of, the book. None of but... Mrs. Hubbard's are played as dowdy housewives. <laughs> no, they, I think Pfeiffer all... Hershey came the closest with her, like, frumpy wig and her, yeah. her teeth. But, um... But yeah, no, Lauren Bacall was You, you cannot front Lauren Bacall. No, 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 no. Um, so, and then David Morrissey as a Colonel Arbuthnot because... Mm-hmm. David Morrissey. David Morrissey. My second favorite Colonel Brandon. Yes. Oh my God, he was so good. Yeah, he was. He was really good too. Um, and then Leslie Woodham Jr. as Dr. Arbuthnot. Dr. Arbuthnot. That's a hard name to say. Oh my God. God it's... damn it, Christy. <sighs> like all of her names in this book, I was like... Uh, uh, okay. Yes, I got it. <laughs> After like the tenth time I said it in my head. Right. So then, our top three styles and outfits. Do you want to go first again? Sure. So, my top three styles. Um, Mary Debenham, as played by Daisy Ridley, has the most amazing plaid coat. Yes. Um, and I just I want to wear it. I want that coat like for myself. Mm-hmm. I actually had that, but then I took it off. I was like, no. Uh, the asymmetrical silver dress that Countess Elena, played by Jacqueline Bissett, wears mm. in the last scene of the 74 film. We were watching it together, and, like, I think we both gasped at the same time and, like, started writing furiously. Because you're like, oh, my God, that dress. It's It's got, like, one sleeve. And, I mean, it's it helps gorgeous. if Jacqueline Bissett is She's stunning. So, so and stunning. she just wears it so well. Yep. Um, and I actually have a tie for, th- for, for, the, for the third place. Um, so... Princess Dragomirov, again in the 1974 version, played by Wendy Hiller, she has these amazing black lace gloves. Ooh. And between that and she has like this white pancake makeup and she looks like a vampire queen. Mm-hmm. It's most of the gloves, but honestly the whole look is pretty great. <laughs> but I also want to give bonus points to Olivia Coleman's Robin Hood hat. Yeah. In the 2017 version, because that thing is That was amazing. Is a, it's a it's a bold choice. It, and she pulls it off. She really does. Well, what doesn't she pull off? Honestly? Olivia Coleman can do no wrong. So true. Oh, 
so true. We'll talk more about her in a second. Yeah, we will. Uh, so, Sam, who are your, what are your top three? So, actually, Kenneth Branagh's mustache. Oh, okay, yes. Because like, he got it right. Because they got that part right. Because he got it right. And I, re- I really wanted to applaud them. Credit where credit is due. Exactly. Um, actually, Barbara Hershey's wig and teeth, because they did such a good job of actually making her look dowdy. Okay. And I was like... You're going in, like, the opposite direction. You're go- You're, like, approving the commitment yes. over the style. Exactly. Okay. And, well, my last one is actually the style, because Michelle Pfeiffer's purple dress when... Oh, yeah. She's so, so stunning. stunning. That... I looked at that one, and I thought about it, but yeah. it... I mean, the Robin Hood hat beat No, it. I had... Yeah. No, I totally understand <laughs> why you picked that. But um, I was just like, yes. It, like, every time this, that, that picture came up, I was like, ah, gorgeous. <laughs> Shall we do quizzes and questions? All right. Let's. Yes. Do you want to go first? All right. Um, so, Anna, would you change Christie's ending? We talked about how all of the movie adaptions did. Would you? If I was to do my own film adaptation, yeah. would I change Christie's ending? Yeah, I think if I was to do it, I would have the butler did it. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Because if like you're, it. I feel like Brana, you know. Made it clear that the bigger your cliche, the better. So I would just really get in there. You would just, like, dig it in, right? Like, what? Or, no, you know what? It's that they were all dead all along. That's Perfect. how it would end. Nice. Six cents that baby up. <laughs> yeah, I would. Oh, by the spoilers, spoilers for six cents. <laughs> all right. Um, what is your favorite adaptation? Okay, if it's not painfully obvious at this point, the 1974 <laughs> version is my favorite. Sam, would you disagree? I would not disagree in any way, shape, or form. So that it, and it's funny because that's the last one we watched. We we saw the film in theaters. Yes. At the, sorry, the, the, the most recent one, the 2017 yeah. film in theaters. And then we watched the Doucet, David Suchet, and we're like, we should probably watch the 1974 version. I, ha- I had because. seen it before, but it's been I had never seen it. 20 years. And re-watching it, I... I it, it actually kind of ruined the other two for me in comparison. It did, right? Because Ugh. it was so much stronger. I just, I remember, like, as, as soon as that movie ended, you and I just, like, just jumped right into conversation. And oh, we, yeah. We, I think we talked about it for, like, the next hour. Yeah, it, it was just such a strong version of the book. And I, you know, each, each version made its own choices and made its own changes, but I just feel like that's the only one that felt like it was a true... Christie adaptation. I don't know. It, yep. It's the only one I enjoyed that yep. I actually had fun. Yep. So one of my questions for you, Sam, I'm going to ask, and I know your answer, which is your favorite Poirot mustache? Canada Rana. Yeah, clearly, because <laughs> you've already talked about it a lot. All right. So my other question for you, I think I know what your answer is, but okay. I wanted to ask you anyways. Okay. Who do you think is the most miscast in any oh. of these versions? I don't know. Oh. Well, okay. I want to say Sean Connery. Interesting. That's actually not what I thought you were going to say. Did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to say Olivia Coleman. No, I don't think she was miscast. I think she was misused. Okay. Yes. She was woefully underused. Yes. Criminally underused. Criminal. Like, I think if they had actually stuck to the part in mm-hmm. the book and, like, let her be more... She would have been. She would have blown that lady. You that have to. You have to wonder like what water. was left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, exactly. Like why would you? Why would you bring somebody as fabulous as Olivia Coleman and give her two lines? That's I don't think that's an exaggeration. Shame. I'm pretty sure she only had one line. Not cool. No, Brana. not cool at all. Not cool. But yeah, no, I think Sean Connery was 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 miscast because, and this will kind of 
bleed into our next segment. Um, I I couldn't I couldn't lose to Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. Like he was just always Sean Connery. Yeah. And I was like, you are an arrogant jerk, and I don't care about you. I kind of thought when he punched um, who did he, did he punch Book or Michelle? No, I can't remember. Uh, must have been Book. I felt like for a second when he punched Book, like, oh, Connery just hit a guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, like, then worked it into the script later. <laughs> it's like, oh, they must have, like, not gone along on set. And it was like, Sean <laughs> Connery can't not punch someone. <laughs> so that's interesting. I thought you were going to say Lady Coleman, and I actually had someone else in mind. Um, I think Toby Jones was miscast. That is, yes, I can see that. So Toby Jones played Ratchet slash Cassetti in the 2010 version and I actually love Toby Jones. Mm-hmm. I think he's a fantastic actor and I have seen him play villains before. Mm-hmm. But um Ratchet is described as having an awful face <laughs> as we discussed and he's someone who you have to like everyone hates him on site. Like Paro literally yep. sees his face and thinks that man is barely human and hates him. And Toby Jones just is he's kind of adorable and I just I think he's too likable. He is. He 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 just he doesn't have that whatever Johnny Depp brought to it. Oh, the wife beater thing. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't have that. He doesn't have that, like, oh, you're a vile human being yeah. thing going for him. Yep. We've lost a lot of respect for Johnny Depp, though. That is not fair. Um, yeah. I actually thought Johnny Depp was well cast as Cassetti. Yes, because I looked at him, and I hated his I face. I wanted to punch his face out. I wanted to punch his face, and I was like, Poirot's not going to work for you, you jerk. And I agree with Brana. Yep, and I am fine with everybody killing you. I am fine with everyone stabbing you in the yep. chest area. Yep. <laughs> all right so all right. that's that so should we move into our fake awards oh let's <laughs> okay so first of all the jeff Goldblum award goes to sean connery for never ever using any other accent like he doesn't even try he never tries. it's like i'm not even gonna try to do it because i will just embarrass myself and just like I'm Sean Connery, and I've got, you know, when he's like, oh my god, what are we talking about? We haven't even talked Sam about Highlander. Sam never, never trying to do a Scottish accent. No. All right, so I the first time I saw the Highlander, <laughs> Sam and I were roommates in college, and I walk in, <laughs> and she's sitting there watching the Highlander with her Which brother. is a great movie. It is not a great movie. <laughs> and I'd never seen the Highlander before, so I walk in about halfway through, and, like, they're riding, you know, horses across the moor. I'm like... Sean Connery is finally actually playing a Scotsman for once. And Sam just goes, no, he's Spanish in this one. (laughs) It's like, what? It's a movie made all about Scottish people, and he's supposed to be Spanish? And there's a Frenchman playing a Scotsman, and then there's a Scotsman playing a Spaniard, and it was great. Yeah, didn't didn't the lead learn his lines phonetically? Yeah, because he didn't know English at that point. Frickin' Celine Dion singing. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It is not a great movie, Sam. It is a terrible movie. Great movie. It's a terrible movie. Oh my gosh. All right, so what are your other awards, Sam? <laughs> um, so actually, this uh, award for uh, favorite morally ambiguous ending to a book. Hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. I am going to give this, uh, I have a couple of awards to give. Perfect. Biggest waste of a stellar actress goes to Kenneth Branagh for criminally underusing Olivia Coleman. Ugh. Best Albert Einstein impression goes to George Kalouris as Dr. Constantine. Oh my god, he was the best. I loved his hair! <laughs> his hair was so great. Best Lauren Bacall impression goes to Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes. <laughs> and Best Supporting Actress Oscar goes to Ingrid Bergman. Which truly happened. She actually wanted a supporting actress. Um, well, I am... Um, I think it's time to talk about 
what we learned from this. Sam, what does ASAP say? Um, well, depending on which version you go with, what is justice? Like, who is responsible for seeing justice done? And, like, how do you know that justice has been achieved? Because in the book, Poirot thinks justice has been done. To, you know, he, he's not worried about uh, making sure justice is achieved for, for you know, Cassetti's death, Ratchet's death. And he, he thinks that, you know, justice for Daisy Armstrong was finally achieved because, you know, Cassetti is, is, has been judged by a jury of his peers. And, you know, they tend to extort him. Um, but if you were to believe all of the other adaptations, the Suchet and the Brana version, then, you know, justice is whatever the court says or whatever your Catholic faith says. And I'm not necessarily sure I agree with that. And that's why I like Christie's version so much better and the Finney version because we all have a sense of right and wrong and a sense of justice. And other, it is true that there are some people whose sense of justice is skewed incredibly wrong, which is why we have murderers and you know people who are above that kind of thing. But at the same time, it's like the court system isn't perfect. So you, you can't just automatically like just be like justice is done because the court system says this and so i that's i don't know that's where i am the gap between uh morality and legality yeah and like it's like the book actually kind of has you question yourself you know they, they really make you think about it and you know like you said earlier it's like what would you do in this situation mm. And I really feel like that's that's what you should be doing. You shouldn't be telling the audience how to feel or how to act or what the answer is. Like, you sh in order to engage them, you should be asking them these questions. Making them ask the questions of themselves. Yeah, and I don't... Mm. The adaptations just don't do that for me. They yeah. basically shove it down my throat. How about you? Um, I learned that um, you shouldn't let Kenneth Branagh near your book. <laughs> If you want a faithful adaptation. I mean, we've learned that so many times, though. Did we and not yet... see Frankenstein? Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> oh, I haven't thought about that movie in a really long time. Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, God. Is she does in that. Know. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That's a... okay. I, you know what? I take back what I said about Highlander. That is a terrible movie. <laughs> Vindiction! I don't know. I, I don't know that I learned a lot from this. It, it's weird for me because even though this, all of the adaptations in the book, you know, raise this, like, moral question, like I said, I find Christie to be, to be champagne. It's, 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 it's a little too fluffy to, to really engage my, my moral quandary. So it, I don't know, I didn't find myself, um, questioning my morals reading it or watching them I, I felt more just irritated at the versions that were trying to convince mm -hmm. me to see things from their site um I feel like more of the takeaway I got was about um I just learned so much about train travel right yeah I honestly love train travel and when I was in college I would actually take the train down to my my home because I didn't have a car at college because you know I was at Northeastern mm-hmm there's just no reason to have a car. Not in Boston. No, and like one of my dreams is actually to take a, a trip across the country. 
on the train. That's so funny. Sam, have I not told you the story of the um, 23-hour train ride I took from Boston to Chicago? No. Oh, it was terrible. I don't think you should tell me. <laughs> it was not a sleeper car. Well, there was your first problem. First mistake. It was a 23-hour train ride um, on a train in the the dining car was not train travel is not it's not like it was in the 30s they did not have like a full dining car with like master chefs serving oysters and steak and stuff there was yeah there was it's like you go to you go to a counter and you say give me the give me a give me a bottle of beer there was toaster strudel yeah and um there were these there were these horrible blonde children who kept going to the bathroom which we were sitting right near the bathroom and Oh, they! I just hated those kids so much. It was, mm-hmm. it was, um, it was one of the worst trips I've ever <laughs> been on. So, um, I do not enjoy your enthusiasm for modern train That's travel. That's okay. But Nobody I think, does. <laughs> I think in 1934 was a little different. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, last year I took the train up to Portland, Maine, and that was actually quite fun because I, I actually like upgraded to business class, so there was a little bit like yeah, spend a little cars, more money. Exactly. Yeah. So, That's the way to go. Yeah. Awesome. So I think uh, I think it's time to, to say goodbye. Do we want to tell them what our next episode's going to yeah. be? So next episode, I'm actually really excited. I am so excited for this one, too. So we will be taking a walk on the seawall of Lyme with Anne Elliott and Captain, Captain Wentworth and Jane Austen's Persuasion. Yay! We will be watching the 1995 version starring Amanda Root and Kieran Hines. Oh, and, so good. And as, as tradition, we will challenge ourselves with a game of six degrees. Can you walk either any of the murder on the Orient Expresses to Persuasion? Oh, bonus points if you can mark all three. Three. (laughs) Um, Although, I feel like Kieran Hines must have been in a movie with Helena Bonham Carter at some point. So I'm I'm sure you can connect. Yeah, he was in one of the Harry Potters because he was Alberforth Dumbledore. (gasps) He was. Oh my goodness, I forgot that. He's almost unrecognizable because he's like all of the. Yeah, he's all gray and long Mm -hmm. hair. yeah. Yeah. But honestly, like, one of my favorite movies of his is Miss Pettigrew Lives Next Door. Oh, that movie is really good. Is that one based on a book? I don't think so. (sighs) That one's mine. I (laughs) I already took it. Darn it. All right. Thanks for listening to Adapted with Anna and Sam. We want to hear from you. Send questions, comments, and your six degrees to adaptedwithannaandsam, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can post on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at Adapted with Anna and Sam. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Adapted Podcast. I'm Sam, and I wish Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day was based on a book. I'm Anna, and I wish Highlander was based on a book. Bye! Bye.